Hello and welcome to another episode of The Philosophy Guy, and hello to new listeners and longtime listeners. So today's episode is a brief history of Western philosophy. Uh, so basically the intention is going to be to create a nice flow of the history and connecting it so we can better apply it to today. So we often hear about various kind of famous philosophers in history, their ideas, their lifestyle, and their influence. However, sometimes we need, I think, a, a historical overview that provides not only the where and the when of these events, but how they connect throughout history. Because to me, that's the best way to see those views through the lens of today. Now, I did an episode on the history of philosophy some months back, but I was not happy with it at all because it happened to be just basically... You know, it was a history of Western philosophy, but it was kind of just like random information that didn't connect and flow the way I would like. So I essentially gutted that episode, kept the timeline, added a bunch of content, took some stuff out that I thought just didn't flow nicely, and I tried to pick areas of thought that connected throughout history and also that were more applicable to today. So basically, if you recognize the title, know that this is a whole new episode, essentially, just some of the original outline was left over. So basically I want to start doing this as well with my more philosophy heavy episodes because I have my philosophy heavy episodes and I have my more cultural heavy episodes, I guess you could call them where I kind of use the lens of philosophy to interpret the culture where these type of episodes are more of here's philosophy and now use this philosophy to kind of apply to your life. So it's those kind of two types of content that I try to focus on doing. But anyway, After the short break that we've had here, the podcast is back up and ready to go in full force. Coming up is a quick take on Joker and its relation to Christopher Nolan's films, The Dark Knight and The Dark Knight Rises, because I think those are a good segue into the stuff I want to do on nihilism. Uh, And the reason I want to do that is because, well, The Joker is relevant today because it's still a new film, and it happens to be that nice segue to bring it back to the Dark Knight and the Dark Knight Rises, if that makes sense. But anyway, the reason I want to do the Nihilist stuff is because our culture is happens to be very obsessed with it, whether we know it or not. So there's people that are aware of it and enjoy that type of content, such as those Christopher Nolan films that have those nihilistic themes. But also our culture is becoming, has these nihilistic themes throughout throughout the culture, throughout entertainment, throughout journalism, throughout news, throughout politics. All over the world, we see these themes. So I want people to better understand nihilism Because it also happens to be one of the most misunderstood concepts out there. And that's why I want to try to get into it and kind of paint a better picture of nihilism, if that makes sense. So I'm trying to keep my also trying to keep my intro shorter as I've kind of failed to do that. But I think I provided you some kind of helpful stuff of where we're going here and what the point of this episode is as well. So I've been lacking on keeping those short. So I want to do a better job of doing that. So real quick, though, you can help support the show by subscribing to the bonus feed for five bucks a month. It's a way to say, you know. Hey man, you know, thanks for doing this show and you know, I like what you're doing, blah blah blah. And I like, you know, I like more of this stuff. How can I do that? The Patreon feed, the bonus episode feed is where it's at. So you can also hit me up on Discord. Uh we have a nice little nice little crew of longtime listeners there. And you can also leave a review on iTunes. That's a good way to help support the show. And also just kind of just sharing with your friends or anyone that you know that that likes this type of stuff. Uh that's the kind of a good way to build a podcast, but also check out the YouTube as well. All that links is below, but let's get into it. Let's stop wasting time, right? So in the beginning, the world had stuff. What stuff? The everything stuff, all of it. From the clouds to the bedrock to everything in between, to the universe, to the cosmos. But at some point, early humans were were brought up 
where we started contemplating all of that stuff, started communicating, trying to discover our place within it, within everything, around it, and the purpose of all that is around us. So even before language, we have historical evidence of early humans trying to express their interpretation of meaning in the world through art, tradition, and rituals, the meaning of life, right? The birth of our innovative communication abilities became the birth of our storytelling. And with the birth of our storytelling became the birth of our illusions. And from here, philosophy was born. And that is not to say that those illusions are necessarily bad. There just happens to be a lot of illusions we follow. And that some of them are helpful and some of them can be harmful. And that's what something we'll get into throughout this podcast as well. Throughout Not this episode, but through other episodes. As you might have known, I've gotten into that stuff. But anyway... <laughs> Sorry about that side dangerous. <laughs> so this is a short history, not a thorough history. My goal is to give you the highlights, essentially. I'm hoping these highlights and connections kind of provide this nice stream of thought for understanding the history of Western philosophy. But first up, we have what I like to call the robed men, the Greek philosophers. So they were some fellow humans in Greece that wanted to know why there was this stuff. And long story short, philosophy made a, a large step forward in this time period. From this period, philosophy was defined as the love of wisdom. Now, today, some interpretations of philosophy view it as a degree for people who love to think about things but would rather avoid numbers in doing said thinking. Or it's people that enjoy you know, studying things that society has deemed a, as a skill that's insufficient to be provided currency for, but I digress on that point. So, however, the concept of, of organized philosophy as as we like to call it, started with the pre-Socratics from the 6th to 7th BC. So the early philosophers did their best to understand this complex world we live in by helping us, you know, raise the many questions we still ask today and we're still confused about, we're still arguing about, we're still debating about, constantly discussing, right? Such as the still widely discussed, what is the meaning of life? Or what is the nature of the universe? Stuff that we still don't actually know today, but we're still trying to figure it out. So, you know, and these questions, you know, you could you could try them out. They could be a nice conversation starter to help break your uh, <laughs> next awkward silence. But the pre-Socratics were basically this nice prelude to the dude who really started spinning the wheels of philosophy. And that is the man, the myth, the legend, Socrates, from around 450 to 390 BC. So for Socrates, rather than just, just, than just sitting around pondering the big questions of the universe— he decided it would be impactful to wander around Athens, asking his fellow citizens these deep questions he asked himself. He, wanted, he went beyond merely engaging Athenians in debate, as his intention was to force them to question the beliefs their society was built upon. And this is where we get the famous quote, An unexamined life is not worth living. The words of Socrates. So, and here's the energy that these, these dudes brought, right? <laughs> and this is the case of Socrates. So I have this short excerpt I found from Plato's Symposium. So listen to this. One time at dawn, Socrates began to think something over and stood in the same spot considering it. And when he found no solution, he didn't leave but stood there inquiring. It got to be midday and people became aware of it, wondering at it among themselves, saying Socrates had stood there since dawn thinking about something. Finally, some of, the, some of them, when evening came, after they'd eaten, it was then summer, carried their bedding out to sleep in the pool air and to watch to see 
if he'd also stand there all night. He stood until dawn came and the sun rose. Then he offered a prayer to the sun and left. That was it. He didn't say any words afterwards. He just left. He just stood there for a whole that whole time and then just left. That is dedication, I say, to the examined life, right? So Socrates, what, what was his intention? Maybe not that story that doesn't necessarily connect to the story. I just found that story funny. But Socrates wanted them, the Athenians, to question whether their society was based on a strong foundation of knowledge, as many seemed to perceive or at least wanted to perceive, or was it made upon these weak foundations of merely traditions, customs, and opinions? So the typical response by Athenian citizens to this line of questioning from Socrates was not to see Socrates as this great liberator of their illusions. He had hoped they would see that. Instead, he was seen as the crazy old fool that was harmful to their society, and he should be shunned for what he's doing. That's that's the way they saw him. You see, Socrates saw us, or saw Athenians, and I think you would see many of us still today, absolutely, I'm 100% sure of that one, but he saw Athenians as prisoners in the cave, saying they have accepted the illusions, they they have become accustomed to them. The shadows on the cave wall is what they've become accustomed to, the illusions, the lie. And as we grow comfortable with our reality, we place more meaning upon and identify with it. We reject challenges to that identity we make for ourselves. So for Socrates, the people of Athens were prisoners to their own customs. And though they didn't admit it, they wanted to remain prisoners to those customs. They didn't see Socrates as, like I said, the great liberator of their beliefs. No, they saw him as a madman a madman that was dangerous for society. Anyways, Athens eventually grew tired of Socrates' constant questioning and they found him to be very annoying. And their society, and, and he did, they did not like him <laughs> questioning their societal illusions and they sentenced him to die. Because you know, how dare someone place a mirror in front of our beliefs and force us to question the reason for doing the things we do and the reason we treat the people the way we do, and the reason we believe what we do, or why we should examine it. How dare someone question us? How dare someone tell us to do such a thing, right? Oh, and then Socrates thought it was a waste of time to write anything down. He was more about dialogue and having an interlocutor, right? But fortunately for us, he had the world's ultimate fanboy and student in Plato. So Plato thought it would be beneficial for society to write down some of these conversations he could remember, or at least uh, supposedly remember, that is, as, as many of these conversations could be a creation of Plato himself, taking on the pen name of the famous Socrates himself. So the great student that Plato was, he continued spreading the ideas of Socrates through the creation of various dialogues and the academy, the great academy all of which were created with the goal of teaching others in society to question, think, and argue for the positions they they simply hold. So from the many students coming through the academy, Plato found a successor that would propel philosophy forward yet again. And here we have Aristotle from 384 to 322 BC, who casually invented the concepts behind logic, you know, the nothing major, just the concepts for properly learning how to reason. Oh, and that, that idea that is constantly regurgitated by everyone who, who took a philosophy class in college, that is that mentioned by Aristotle. We are different 
from animals by our ability to reason. And, and that's continuing to discuss today as well. But that's a, that's a topic for another day. But really, Aristotle helped expand the concepts of philosophy. He shifted it away from only challenging and questioning people's illusions towards a more kind of organized analysis of our inner thoughts and reasoning. So after Aristotle began to put more value in the attempts at answering those questions we found so important. So basically the transition was from kind of this external contemplation to a more focus on internal contemplation. And that's that's the important transition here I want you to connect with. But then we have, I have to mention the time of, what I call the time of Christ. Now we are going to skip some years such as the Dark Ages. And why I skip them? For one, it's called the Dark Ages for a reason. And two, this is a podcast episode and it's not a book so i don't want you to be here for three hours so we're going to skip a bunch of stuff but i want to kind of express why i'm skipping some of this so so moving on to around the 11th century you have some universities opening up throughout europe during this time scholasticism was born which attempted to connect aristotelian logic with christian thought i won't be getting into the problematic nature of kind of this attempt but let's just say this scholastic thought is often linked to the words dogma tradition and narrow-minded. So let's keep moving from there. So we then have the Renaissance, starting in the 14th century, translation meaning rebirth, coming after a time where Europe experienced the plague that wiped out between 30 and 50% of the European population. A rebirth was needed, a time to reevaluate, discover, and think about the world once again. So the rebirth, it brought back this focus to the arts more. So we had Shakespeare writing some stuff. You had Da Vinci. He was kind of inventing some stuff. And then you had Galileo. He found some stuff in the sky. Things were looking better for Western civilization again. And the time had come for philosophers to think about some more stuff again, right? So this is where we get into understanding our illusions. Keeping the timeline moving here. So we have the Enlightenment starting around the 18th century where we get back to the big questions like, do you really exist? You know, so hey, you, yeah, you listening to this right now, do you think you really exist? Then, if you say yes, now you must prove it. And how do we prove that? So, well, luckily we had Rene Descartes to come along. He happened to find it fun to lock himself in a room and think about existence, meaning and wondering what can he actually know. So, what can we know for certain? That's what Descartes was trying to figure out. Well, does the universe exist? Maybe. Does the world exist? Maybe. What about your country, your family, and your friends? Maybe in some sense, right? Leading himself down this line of reasoning, he contemplated if life is truly all just a dream. Maybe sometimes we wish it was just a dream that we need to wake up from, right? <laughs> or we it's a dream that we wish we never have to wake up from. But wait, am I thinking? That's the question. Is, is, or is that the question? Descartes said, yes. So if I'm thinking, that must mean I exist. And from here, I think, therefore, I am, was born. So the famous phrase of Descartes was woven into the quotable history of philosophy, which led him to believe maybe all of this isn't just a dream, because he thought no one could trick him into thinking that he was thinking. However, Descartes, like Socrates, found himself fixated on trying to understand the foundations we build our knowledge upon. He doubted that we could accept the knowledge we claim, 
See, if those foundations we build it upon are unreliable, now instead of looking to debate the citizenry in the public square like Socrates, Descartes looked for an alternative method for understanding knowledge, and that was introspection. He took what Aristotle said and basically doubled down on it. So through his introspection and pursuit of understanding knowledge, Descartes found himself doubting his experiences, his thoughts, his perceptions, his preconceived notions, his beliefs, and his reason. His introspection led him down a path of doubt that led later philosophers to carry the doubting mantle into skepticism. That's a nice little nice little connection there. And this is where we have kind of, I would say, David Hume took the mantle of trying to understand knowledge. So Hume found that if we try to build knowledge back up from the most basic elements, our reliance on the concept of, of causality can no longer be true. It becomes something we can only kind of believe to be true. And when, when I say believe to be true, we kind of just have to put some sort of faith in it. So his reasoning based on, on Descartes' method of casting doubt our ability to casting doubt on our ability to verify knowledge through our perceptions means we do not necessarily experience necessity. Thus, if we cannot experience necessity, <laughs> I don't know why I struggle to say that word. But if we so if we cannot experience necessity, then causality ceases to be a reliable basis for verifying knowledge. So for Hume, causality becomes a system of probability instead of truth. So for example, when I fall asleep, I will likely wake up. That's an example. Rather than me being certain that when I fall asleep, I will certainly wake up. So the probability is high. However, the outcomes are not certain or necessary, or at least we cannot perceive them or know them to be certain or necessary. So the implication of this understanding is that we cannot have knowledge. So Hume suggests that we we wrongly believe in our kind of this this imaginary supreme power of reason when in reality we should believe in the supreme power of experience. That's what Hume put forward. So our experience of something being true may be simply the discovery or experience of that something being preferable. Thus truth is basically becomes in this this constant state of flux, this constant flow and motion. Nothing more than a bundle of our perceptions that are influenced by our experience, our environment, and our perceptions. So here's a quote. Reason is and ought only to be the slave of the passions and can never pretend to be any other office than to serve and obey them. Words of David Hume. But when, but then we have Immanuel Kant come in. And he came in the latter half of the 18th century. He also had, had claimed that Hume played a large part in awakening him to, to take on philosophy. So basically during this time, the rationalists and empiricists had some disagreements about the words of Hume. So Kant stepped up to the plate and said, you know, knock it off, everyone. I have a plan. And his plan was the categorical imperative, which I'm not actually going to explain today. I just want to throw it out there. But anyway, essentially, Kant said Hume made a mistake in believing we can begin from experience. As experiences are not something we, we intrinsically have. They are something we create. So for him, space, time, experience, they are within us. They are within our being. They are how we perceive reality and the mind constructs our experience of reality. Long story short, 
Kant tried to reinsert our reliance on reason by claiming we can have this a priori knowledge. And I want to go on a little side tangent here before we transition. So what I've, what I've realized as I was kind of doing research on this episode and as I continue to research philosophy is as I continue to go down these various schools of thought and thinkers and whatnot, I realized that, you know, I don't like when people think that they need to ascribe to one school of thought and that becomes their being. That becomes their illusion they follow. I've realized that a lot of philosophers have some interesting things to say. You can disagree with some of it, some of the stuff. You can agree with other parts of it. You can pick and choose. You can pick and choose to fit your way you see the world and how you can pick and choose ideas that also help you understand it better through your kind of own experience. And that's the point I want to put across here because Kant's point against Hume was very insightful in my eyes. But Hume's point also was very insightful. It's just the ways, the lenses you look at it. And of course, you're going to have to dive deeper than I'm going into today for sake of time. But that's the point I want to get across. And that's the point I want you to be thinking about is don't just try to dismiss the ideas. Try to try to consider what you can take from those ideas and what parts of those ideas could be beneficial, helpful to understanding the world, understanding yourself, understand the meaning, understanding purpose, understanding all that good stuff, right? That's kind of the point. But moving on, so we have a combination of Descartes, Hume, and Kant. They had a major influence over natural philosophy as well, also known as science. So the study of the natural world. Oh, and yes, science is a school of philosophy, and yes, philosophy of science could and should still matter no matter how many times Neil deGrasse Tyson tells me or the world that philosophy is dead. We don't need it anymore. Don't, don't, don't let him, don't let him uh, do that to you. He's, he's wrong. Basically, the study of the natural world brought forward the thinking method called the scientific method. So the scientific method goes something like this. If you have a hypothesis, let other people check if your theory works. If it does routinely, then you have yourself a theory. However, if your hypothesis is broken by experimentation, go back to the drawing board, friend. And that's basically the scientific method in a simple little nutshell. And now we're going to move on to modernism. And this is where we get into the more popularly misrepresented Friedrich Nietzsche. He hated everything, everyone, including God, and he killed him. That's a great, accurate misrepresentation of Nietzsche. But no, he actually... I am just not pronouncing things well in this episode today, and I apologize. But no, he actually obliterated... I don't know why I'm struggling with that word. He obliterated the narrative of idols and structures in the world, which paved the way for edgy 20-somethings like myself to quote him and express a rebellion at the illusions that we see all across the world. And basically, nothing means anything and we're all going to die. So you see, Nietzsche focused on something else in particular that differs from the philosophers previously mentioned. And he focused on the world of language. He looked back at the history of what is good and what is evil and the language that many look or took to be pure and rational, alluding to Kant here, and found that it wasn't pure and it wasn't all this pure rationality that we think it is. You see, for Nietzsche, he found that Kant was wrong in believing morality to be absolute, universal, and true, but was actually a result of 
a war for survival between various rival moralities. Our concept of morality results from a plethora of conflicting perspectives, a battle with each other, perspectives on morality. The ones we currently follow are those that have kind of won out in that battle. This doesn't mean they're necessarily good, pure, the best. He found that they can often be dangerous and even hostile to life itself. So Nietzsche concluded that we should continue the struggle of considering competing moralities and at the end of the day, remember, just, you know, enjoy life. You then have the birth of existentialism kind of from this during the 20th century, made famous by the French philosophers Jean-Paul Sartre and Simone de Beauvoir and Albert Camus. They found that through experiencing life during World War II, it seemed life itself was not only meaningless, but absurd. The world had just experienced the atrocity of Nazism and fascism, the Holocaust. Yet when the war concluded, people just went back to their lives of working, eating, shopping, gossiping, sleeping, going through their loops of life, the routine, the mundane. They just kept, they just went back to it. Nothing life-altering, acting as though nothing life-altering had just happened. This was absurd in the minds of the existentialists. People were falling right back into their loops, routines, and normal life. Yet life itself had shown itself to be abnormal. Something is off here. When, when, when the world allows Nazism and fascism to become this dominant, this dominant place for a time period, something is wrong in society is what they would say. So for the existentialist, people being so willing to just fall back into normalcy, fall back into order, meant most people were okay with living absurd lives. They saw this as avoiding responsibility, denying our freedom, and embracing conformity. So for the existentialists, they claimed we should embrace our freedom, combat the mundane, and combat the meaninglessness of that routine that we so blindly follow and rebel in order to live life. Thus, build your own illusions by accepting freedom and deny the comfort of the mundane. That was... That was their insight and kind of the flow there. So you can kind of see the transition there. You have Nietzsche. Uh, so Descartes kind of started started putting forward this idea of skepticism of like, oh, maybe we're wrong about this stuff. And then you have Hume kind of embracing that. And then you have Kant trying to combat that and kind of somewhat successfully doing it in certain areas. And Hume had his successes, right? And then you have Nietzsche saying, no, we have all of this wrong. We have all these all these other illusions about morality and all this stuff. And you kind of can gradually start seeing that flow of where we are today. And maybe you can even see this kind of evolution of it. Not progress. Don't don't use progress. <laughs> evolution of it. I'm trying to avoid the word progress, right? <laughs> evolution. Because progress within it, there's this connotation around it, this meaning behind it. Progress assumes good. So what I'm doing, if I'm progressing, I'm moving forward and upwards, upward trajectory, and that must be good. And we're going to be getting into that concept in later episodes. That's a little prelude. But anyway, now we have postmodernism, another very misunderstood school of thought. So after the thoughts of modernism, we have the introduction of postmodernism, which can probably be best expressed by imagining modern art. So traditional art in the historical context has certain structure, flow, and rules. You know, you had, that's where the, the kind of the time of Christ period comes in, where you have these this art that had very kind of, 
you could see the structure and the rules there that that artist followed. But the postmodernist said, we must examine why we have the structure and what does it mean. So the postmodernist wants you to challenge your beliefs about everything. Challenge those structures. So that's why if you just, I can't do it here because it's a podcast because you have to go see the images. But type in postmodern art and you will get exactly what I mean, okay? (laughs) Because everything is, in a sense, interpretation. There's no real narrative to follow, no objective narrative to follow. If you accept that the narrative itself is created, and bringing this back to the example of art, it led to many finding the world to be this blank canvas, this project for our illusions to be created upon. We can project those illusions onto this blank canvas. There isn't this preconditioned, this pre-established order that is there, that is true, that is in structured and strict in reality. Essentially, we became accustomed to rules, rituals, and customs that we blindly conform to. We eternalize these rules by creating narratives around them, which became or becomes accepted and followed by society. And these meta-narratives, they call them, find their way into our subconscious that we use to create values, ideas, and meanings to live by. But the postmodernist wants us to recognize that these narratives we create are illusions. So rather than blindly accept these narratives, ideals, and values, and traditions as the undeniable narratives, the undeniable truth that we must follow, we should always be willing to question their usefulness. Why do we have these narratives? We can recognize the benefits of narratives, the benefits of illusions, the benefits of storytelling, the connection, the communication, those aspects. But we can always be questioning them. We can always say, wait, why am I doing this? Why why am I following this narrative? And when we do that, we can constantly be saying, are these narratives useful to society, useful to myself, useful for the world, useful for the future? Because when we no longer accept them to be fundamentally intrinsically true, objective, that we must be followed, that they can't be altered, they can't be changed, we begin to re-examine why we do the things we do. So postmodernism, as I said with nihilism, is another area that I want to be getting into as well. So thus, basically what postmodernism is saying, be willing to build new foundations, but never proclaim those new foundations as the universal foundation that we all must follow. So, That brings us to conclude with today. Where are we now? Well, now we focus philosophy on many of the same questions I discussed throughout this piece, throughout this episode, which are meaning, truth, values, and uh, historical ideas. But it also focuses us on understanding what is consciousness. You know, where where are we getting all this stuff kind of extends from consciousness? Asking, you know, what are human rights? How are they benefiting us? What are they doing? What, What should we have? Blah, blah, blah. How should we run society? Are robots going to take over the world? Can science claim to answer everything and kill philosophy? But the point is this. We still don't know what's going on. Consciousness is still a mystery. and We still can't seem to find a way to get along. So I'll say this. As long as we still have mysteries in our universe, we will still have many deep conversations to have. So let's, uh, let's enjoy the ride and let's try to have some of those conversations on this podcast as well. And uh, yeah, that's that's a brief history of Western philosophy, and I hope it helps you understand why we are where we are today in the world of ideas and philosophy. So 
And these concepts I've alluded to are just the beginning. We will begin diving deeper into these concepts and what they mean for us today in society and understanding ourselves, understanding the world, blah, 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 blah. Thanks for listening. Check out those links below. Help support the show. Peace.